Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome once again to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation with creative people is alive and well. And today, the author of a new novel called Death's Pale Flag. He's Dr. Gary Simmons. It's been called a riveting psychological thriller, combining a look behind the curtain of modern-day neurosurgery with a journey into the paranormal. And we'll get into all of this with our guest. Gary is a neurosurgeon. He's treated tens of thousands of patients. He's also a professor at the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine and the Virginia Tech School of Neuroscience. He's also published three nonfiction books on burnout and psychological distress in healthcare providers, and routinely writes and talks about it. So let's introduce you now to the author of Death's Pale Flag, Dr. Gary Simmons, who joins us on mic. Well, uh, I know I say this a lot, but I absolutely love this book. Uh, I was engrossed in it, always looking for a novel that'll keep me up at night. And Gary, thank you for joining me, and thank you for the work you've done over now many decades as a as a doc, as a surgeon, helping or trying to help people in tough situations. Well, thank you so very much for having me, and I'm, I am deeply honored. Your uh, background is pretty extensive in this area, and you've written a lot of nonfiction books to and nonfiction papers, of course, to help people in the field, to help people understand. Why did you decide, though, to take this tack, and we'll get into Death's Pale Flag and, and what it's all about in a second, but uh, to go fiction, what was that all about? Uh, I, I think there are many factors uh, that went into it. Um, I actually retired from clinical neurosurgery, meaning doing the operations. Um, I, I've actually I've, uh, stayed involved in teaching medical students and pre-medical students and all. But I, anyway, I retired from clinical neurosurgery a couple of years ago. Well, now it's probably three years ago or so. Um, really, actually, several years earlier than I had intended due to, ironically, my own neurological illness. Um, but anyway, it, it, at that time, I had always thought, and I had always worked during my my career to try to um, get people to understand or to allow people to understand what what goes on in the neurosurgical world. There there was a lot of interest in it. We had students uh, of all levels coming all the time to see how things worked. And I think there there was a, a uh, definite fascination amongst uh, non-medical people. And so I, I always had a inkling to write, you know, a, a great, uh, a great expose, mm. if you will, and I, uh, of the neurosurgical world. But there are a few good books out there uh, related to that, and I began. That, but they are all nonfiction, and uh, I, even though they're really good, sometimes they can feel a bit didactic. And and so I, I started thinking, well, 
if I if I wrapped it into a, a fictional story, it might be much more immersive for the reader. The reader might actually get to feel what it's like to to go into the operating room, to hold mm -hmm. the scalpel, to hold the high speed drill. And so I think that was uh, the principal driver in my aim was was to increase the understanding of that world through immersion. Let me just tell the audience, you will be in that operating room and at times you, you almost want to look away from the page because it's so dramatic and we'll get into some of the drama and what it's all about. Before we get to that, let's talk about the title. You explain the title and right before the book opens and uh, you can never go wrong quoting Shakespeare. Exactly, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Shakespeare nut anyway. Um, you know, several several of his works and uh, criticism books are are on my nightstand all the time. But uh, Death's Pale Flag is from Romeo and Juliet, and I think it's it's uh, particularly particularly apropos in that he's describing the fact that uh, he believed Juliet to be dead, and yet she hadn't lost the blush in her cheeks of the living, uh, and he. You know, he was decrying the fact that uh, she didn't even look dead yet. Mm. In this novel, which is a thriller and it's emotionally deep and very, very disturbing at times and yet very exhilarating. It does a lot of things, throwing a lot of accolades your way, but don't worry, I'm going to dig deep. The hero of our story is essentially the, the neurosurgeon. Ryan Brennan, and he is quite the hero, but he's almost a paper tiger hero because he's he's got the reputation of being the guy who can save any situation, perfect family life, holds to his schedule like nobody else. But as we peer behind the, the third wall, we realize he's got a lot of issues, and a lot of it has to do with his work and uh, not being able to balance his time. How much of that is based on your experience in this challenging field? Well, uh I, I would have to say that there's a fair amount of it based <laughs> on uh, reality, uh, either in my own life or uh, amongst my colleagues. Uh, the the marriage survival uh, among some of my closest friends and and colleagues uh, was not very high. Um, and uh, a lot of it uh, did have to do with a an over -ded dedication, if you will. I, it, there, there is a concept, um, I think, that the better a physician you are, uh, the harder it becomes to be anything else. Um, it, it, uh, once, once you're committed, the demand is always there. And uh, there is always more demand than you have of yourself. And so the question is, where do you cut it off? Where can you say, uh, that's the end of today, and I'm going to get out of here and get to my other life, hopefully my real life. In this story, there's the trauma center, and, and the doctor doesn't know what's coming in and when. Talk about the difference between that kind of lifestyle and the lifestyle of a planned surgical calendar, because there has to be a, a marked difference, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it can either be a, a curse or a blessing, I think, depending on your personality set. Um, for me, I, I always worked in trauma centers. Um, and a, along with trauma centers, you know, along with the trauma, it means they're dealing with a lot of acute problems. So people with strokes, people with hemorrhages, they, they would be coming in along with the car accidents and mm. uh, the ATV accidents and that sort of thing. 
Um, but for somebody like me, I, I, I think I learned about myself that I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie, not that I needed to get on a motorcycle, but I, I actually um, resonated with having crises going on around much of the time. And so these, these things, these terrible uh, circumstances would appear out of nowhere and you know be basically dropped on your lap and you had minutes to kind of sort things out and, and do whatever you could uh, to help. Uh, and this this would come day or night, often at night more than at day. Um, and uh, and yeah, your your entire day was uh, one disruption after another. But for me, that seemed to to keep the interest uh, going. For other people, it was very disruptive, and and had they had a very difficult time adjusting to having to rearrange everything. Um, so I think it's it's very personality oriented. I'm sharing conversation with Dr. Gary Simmons. His new novel is called Death's Pale Flag. As we record this, it's about to be released nationally, and I had a chance to read it early. And uh, don't worry, we're going to get to the ghosts. We're going to get to the ghosts, I promise. There's so many things that I want to ask you about, including the politics in the hospital. We all know what happens if you've watched enough TV shows or if you've just been in a hospital. I have a sister-in-law who's a, a major doc in uh, one of the big hospitals in New York, the politics and the infighting, particularly with administration, it's not across the board, but it does happen. And you you share some of that in the book. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think I, I if anything, I a lot of politics fell on the cutting room floor. The uh, the book was much longer in its original version. I think it, it I was at it around 260,000 words when I realized that um, I'm not Stephen King. People aren't going to I'm going to want to read a book that thick. Um, and so I think I probably uh, edited a lot of, a lot of that out. Um, but the, the the politics can be extreme or they can be minor. and i've I've actually lived through uh, both uh, in various uh, incarnations. Ideally, um, the politics are held to a minimum and you stay focused on the patients. And I think there's a there's a often a lack of understanding uh, when you talk administration and providers. I think there's often a, a lack of understanding of each other's roles. And I think we, the physicians and providers, are often very frustrated with the administrators. But the, the, the reality is they're the ones having to interface with federal regulations, state regulations, insurance companies, mm. and that sort of thing. So, so a lot of their actions seem um, arbitrary to us, where they're really just trying to get through the hoops to keep the ship afloat. Most most hospitals do not function at huge margins. Their margins uh, are are very narrow, and so it's really easy to go into the red. And when yeah. they go into the red, it's you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. On a very, very limited scale, uh, my industry, radio and TV and broadcasting is similar. You know, the talent is on one end. We can't imagine management acting the way they do, but we have to think about what they have to do. In our case, though, it's usually not life and death uh, situations. So let's talk a little bit about the surgical procedures you outline in the book, and you do it in fictional form, but these are all obviously legitimate procedures. And one of the things that I really, I found this to be, shocking and in a way was the speed at which you would address an issue i mean these are not 15 hour surgeries these are quick 
almost mash-like surgeries to save somebody's life. And we're talking about the brain here. We're talking about head trauma. Yes, sir. Well, um, particularly when you're in an acute situation of strokes and hemorrhages and that sort of thing, you do have to move very quickly. The brain is not very tolerant of uh, a less than ideal environment. And so if it's being crushed or it's being robbed of of oxygenation, it's going to be it's going to be shutting down and dying uh, literally sometimes within minutes. And so you really do have to move. Uh, we'll we'll see somebody in the emergency room and literally be pushing the uh, gurney ourselves up to the operating room uh, sometimes because it is it is so dire and the, the timing is is so critical. So uh, now that's different from a truly elective uh, brain operation. Many brain tumors, that sort of thing can go many hours uh, and they're set up nicely and organized and arranged and, and you can take your time and bring the microscope in and, and, and do your work without the pressure of time or at, la at least without a lot of pressure of time. I think it's always best for the brain to be efficient uh, as far as time goes. But when you get when you hit the emergencies, minutes actually count. One of the misconceptions, I've never been under the knife, I hope never to be, but one of the misconceptions of surgeons in general, doctor, is that they cut and they leave and they're done. They don't follow up. In the book, and in, I know this is true for you, you're constantly checking your beeper, you're constantly calling in, you're making visits after hours to check on patients. And I think a lot of people have that image of the doctor just being God, doing his thing or her thing and moving on. What What's your overall thought on that? Is, is, are most surgeons very much hoping to get back and get, get follow-up and, and track their progress? Oh, I think so. I, I At least the good ones. Uh, they really <laughs> stay very much invested and very much involved. I, there's an interesting dichotomy uh, that I don't think really exists, but uh, surgeons are often uh, considered kind of technicians, and the internal medicine docs and neurologists and other fields are are called cognitive specialists. Uh, you know, they're the ones who do do the thinking. We're the ones who do the tinkering under the hood. And I, I always would retort when that was presented to me. You know, first of all, do you think we don't think when we're in the middle of somebody's brain? And second of all, do you think we don't speak with patients? I mean, we have to convince somebody that you know we're going to open up their head and and look around. And and people don't just you know volunteer for that. You you really have to establish a relationship. Um, and one of the things we teach, and of course, I, I taught uh, residents and med students for years, but one of the things that we teach is we can teach anybody how to do the actual operation, but it's really all the perioperative care that often makes or breaks the situation. So yeah, you you mm. got to be uh, involved. You got to be seeing your patients. You, you develop that kind of sixth sense when a patient is recovering from surgery as to whether they're going to turn up their toes or not. Um, and so I, I think that's such a critical part of care is, is multiple follow-ups. Yeah, that's what makes the hero so heroic in my estimation. Now let's get into the subtext of all this. And uh, this is where the novel goes to the next level. And it involves our neurosurgeon who's doing everything, pushing himself, sleep deprived, et cetera, et cetera, dealing with the stresses of the job, starts to see 
things. Let's call them spirits, ghosts, call it what you will. And before we have you explain what happens in the book, you have a little uh, ancestral history here that lends itself to telling ghost stories or to understanding ghosts. You want to share that with us? Sure. I um, I guess I came... I, again, out of kind of a dualistic situation, I had a father who was very pragmatic and very uh, straight up on everything. And then I, my mother and my grandmother lived in our house. Uh, um, both were Scottish, off the boat Scottish. Uh, and I think half the British population uh, at least believes in ghosts. And certainly my mother and grandmother had multiple stories of their own encounters with ghosts. So my my entire uh, upbringing, I was surrounded by the concept that uh, these things were real and that you may you might find an interface with them at at any day or any point in time. And then, of course, I read a million ghost stories when I was a kid and still gravitate to them, you know, in movies and and books mm-hmm. and all. So, uh, yeah, it's it's in my blood. So here we have a doctor who's so dedicated, but under a lot of intense professional and personal pressure. And you you spell out the fact that he's sleep deprived, he's stressed, and things happen, you know, chemically in the brain that no matter who you are, you can start seeing things. What's happening to him? Well, that becomes one of the central questions is um, he he begins to experience these encounters, originally thinks uh, that he's hallucinating uh, uh, but uh, he begins to believe another line of evidence that maybe he's not hallucinating. Maybe he's actually experiencing uh, encounters with the dead, with ghosts. Um, and uh, he he rightfully seeks psychiatric and neurological uh, counsel and, and evaluation to see uh, if this could be explained on a, on a medical level. Of course, he doesn't tell. He he only shares this with the psychiatrist that he believes them to be ghosts, um, and uh, um, goes through a, all the typical evaluations mm-hmm. to look for a neurological reason for this or a psychiatric reason for it. Um, and but begins himself to truly believe uh, that he is experiencing ghosts. And uh, the question for the reader is: Is he or or is he? potentially losing his mind. Well, here's something that I wanted to share with you. I, I've done different shifts in my world, and I, for 21 years, I did a late-night show, talk show on a big station here, and uh, late-night was the prime time because you could be heard all over the country. And when I would drive home, uh, I would keep the windows open and whistle and keep the radio up. When I got into my neighborhood, and I've told this story to friends, when I got into my neighborhood knowing I was home, it was a small circle to drive through, I would just sort of relax a little bit, and all of a sudden, bushes and shrubs would look like animals. I mean, they would look like big elephants and dragons, and I swear, I, I, I felt I was in a mystical land. So I can understand where sleep deprivation alone can play tricks with your head. Yeah, that, that's certainly uh, one, of the, uh, one of the theories uh, from the people involved with caring uh, with the protagonist with Ryan uh, was that uh, maybe the, uh, so much of this is just severe sleep deprivation. Uh, and yes, you know, the, the brain is, the brain is very good at uh, creating basically anything. Um, uh, we know even uh, the easiest example is in our dreams. We can see basically anything. Mm-hmm. We can create any scenario and it can be very vivid. 
And uh, when you are sleep deprived, sleep really can interject itself at any time. Uh, and so I think it was very plausible that uh, potentially uh, seeing things, experiencing things may have been due to the sleep deprivation. Now, most of us have never seen a dead body. Most of us have never been in the room when somebody has expired. But when you're so close to it and involved in it and you're on that dividing line for so many people, you propose the, the possibility that there might be an, an open window, a, a slightly more ajar door that will enable you to connect. I think that I thought that was a pretty cool concept. Yeah, I, I, I have always been very interested in the interface of science and spirituality, if you will, or religion or, or um, uh, paranormal um, in mm -hmm. that uh, I, it just has always fascinated me. I think we have a lot of hubris on the science side that we think we we know everything, we can discount everything, and and uh, I, I'm just not in that camp. I, I keep a very open mind to all the things right. that, that are possible. But uh, I, I, again, I began toying with that idea of there are people in their lives in this very sterilized society that we live in now. You know, as you say, we are very separate from death uh, most of the time. But there are people in that in that hospital, not just the neurosurgeons, but uh, quite a few people who are who are there all the time. They, they you know they watch people die in front of their eyes. They are uh, watching people dying all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, they're struggling there in the operating room as somebody is dying uh, under their under their uh, hands. So uh, if anybody potentially is you know cracking open that door or opening up the bridge or something, I thought, well, that, that would be probably a good candidate. The The dead would be used to having them around, if you will. And the, and they were there at the time of their transition. So that's that's kind of how that notion started playing yeah. out. In my I, I would argue, too, that uh, the transition on the other side, when a baby is born, when you're in the room for that, and I've been there twice, that's uh, that's also a, a soulful spiritual moment. It's physical, obviously. It's medical. It's it's anatomical, but it's also it's magic. So uh, why wouldn't there be magic on the other side? You know. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, it, it, you, it, yeah. There's no other way to describe it. It's a magical experience. The wife, uh, or it doesn't have to be a wife. It could be a husband, or it could be a partner. It doesn't matter. But in this case, it's a wife who uh, is bearing under the pressure of Ryan's schedule and his intense dedication and his basic, you know, self-described cracking up. Uh, and you mentioned earlier at the beginning of our chat, uh, Dr. Gary Simmons, about family and how important it is to, to not lose sight of the fact that they're there for you. Uh, how did you work it with your mate, with your soulmate uh, or your significant other when you were in the business? I, I, referring to my own, not in the book, you mean? Yes. Uh, well, I probably worked it not as ideally as uh, as uh, I should have, um, but I tried. Um, I think uh, there's there's an interesting dynamic that occurs. I think particularly when you when you have children, uh, which we did. We had three boys. And I think uh, my wife and I were very close uh, before the boys, uh, but uh, we had an understanding uh, going into it all. My wife's an occupational therapist, so she she is in the field 
and uh, uh, we knew that it was going to be a lot of time away, and we knew that there was going to be a lot of work. Um, originally, I think my wife saw it as a, what a great opportunity. She was interested in neuroscience as well, and uh, here she uh, would be able to share all that um, all that I experienced. And unfortunately, I kind of like the character. Uh, was not big on bringing home what was going on um, mm. in in uh, the hospital world because it was pretty dark and pretty bleak. And I think at, at some point you needed the escape uh, to get home and kind of create a wall between the two worlds, which worked fine. But when or I say fine, but when the boys came and there's only limited time, I guarantee that I shifted my energies, my engagement uh, onto the boys, uh, and took it away from her. Uh, and I yeah. think that's one of the dangers. And yeah. I think, uh, in order to maintain balance in one's life, uh, it's, it's going to be important to, uh, remain engaged with all the, all the people that are important to you in your life. Well, in terms of medical training and residency and all that, I think finally they're starting to crack down on this working 48 52, 60 hours straight nonsense, which just burns people out before they're even officially doctors. And, I, you know, it's it's like a boot camp times 10, I think. And uh, are, is that a, a trend in, in many hospitals? And are we hopeful that this will help set the pace? And also, uh, what about emotional counseling in, in, in general for people in your field? Why shouldn't that be a prerequisite? Uh, well, you're you, you are very much preaching to the choir. Um, the last 15 years or, or so, I've spent very much immersed in the world of uh, burnout in healthcare personnel. Um, uh, the, my my nonfiction books are all on burnout and building resilience. The key is not the burning out. The 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 key is uh, building the resilience uh, and the wellness. And you're right. The the system just seemed uh, oriented to uh, to doing this to the physicians. So back in my day when the snow was so deep and we had to walk uphill both ways, um, the during residency, which was seven years, we worked about 110 hours a week, meaning in the hospital 110 hours a week, mm. uh, not getting any sleep every second or third night. And uh, it, it's just madness. So uh, there have been restrictions placed on the residencies, uh, and beyond the restrictions, a lot of residencies are figuring this out and really trying to make it uh, far more humane. But there's an interesting switch that's going on. If I if I write another uh, burnout book, a nonfiction bur burnout book, it's going to be entitled something like, Are We Burning Out Our Doctors Before They Reach Medical School? Mm. Uh, I think we've shifted a lot of this tremendous pressure onto the pre-meds. And the, the pre-meds now, the people trying to get into medical school are expected, of course, to get stellar grades and test scores. But now they have to have thousands of hours of research and thousands of hours of community service and thousands of hours of, of uh uh, experiencing the medical world one way or the other, having a job, you know, doing something quasi-medical. And so I'm just watching these these poor undergrads just get crushed by the process of just getting into medical school. Brought that up because I have friends, colleagues, and even relatives who have experienced that. And uh, 
it's really it's tough to watch, I mean, and, and then to see how they develop. The old expression, uh, if you want to be a, a superstar in the academic world, be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon. How much more complex is just that nature of medicine because of all that we do not know about the brain? Oh, sure. I, I, I mean, we, we spend uh, a lot of time in the in the field of neuroscience so even though you know we're 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 trained to do these operations which are kind of macroscopic if you're operating on something you're not down on the microscopic level uh but we spend much of our our uh years studying and that's after you get home at night but studying how an individual neuron works and how a synapse works and how various areas of the brain are connected with other various areas of the brain so we are kind of we are neuroscientists, and we actually often do a fair amount of research in that realm. There is a funny side to this. I it it always is somewhat amusing that we're you know put in the same category as rocket scientists or particle physicists, and I think we get we're gifted that because of the organ we work on. You know, if you're working on the heart, nobody's really uh, saying, yeah, yeah, you're the equivalent uh, yes. uh, as as. Uh, rocket scientists, but because it's the brain, the assumption is that, you know, we're geniuses ourselves. And I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. One more thing um, to throw another accolade at you regarding this book, which we've been talking about, Death's Pale Flag. Oftentimes you get to the end of a book and it's the end and you put it down. I'll just say this, you get to the end of this book and it's a, oh, wow moment. So <laughs> just, I, I, that should tease the audience a little bit. A great ending, one of the better endings I've read in a long time. Oh, dear. Well, thank you, because uh, I, I'd say the split right now is almost 50-50. Uh, some people are saying to me, why in the world did you end it that way? And uh, others are saying what you said. Oh, oh great, I, it's I love it. fun. I loved it. I, just, I always love to be taken on a ride, and the whole book is a ride, but this was a, a great uh, conclusion for me, for me. So I'm in that, make it 51-50. So. All right. I, I, I very much appreciate that because I enjoyed it. And I think, you know, I think when you're writing these things, uh, you better enjoy it yourself uh, or I, I can't really hope that anybody else might. Well, I would highly recommend it for anyone. Uh, again, I the only prerequisite is be prepared for some pretty dramatic stuff in the operating room. Nothing that happens in this book isn't plausible because you've done it. You've been there. Some of the descriptions are, well, let's put it this way, graphic, because they have to be. That's the only way to really tell the story. Yeah. And I, in, as a matter of fact, I kind of toned those down, oh. but I really wanted the the audience to begin or the, the readers to begin to think as they read through this, well, what really is more terrifying, the 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 uh, paranormal side of this or or kind of the normal side of what, what goes on uh, in the real world? And some of these horrible injuries, some of these horrible diseases and, and trying to deal with it, I think can be and should be somewhat terrifying. Indeed. It's called Death's Pale Flag. Let me spell your name because that's your website, Gary, G-A-R-Y, Simmons, S-I-M-O-N-D-S. That D is important. We want to make sure we get that in there. GarySimmons.com. As we record in a first or so week of June, we're, what, two or three weeks out from the actual release 
Yes, sir. It's uh, on June 27th, which uh, happens to be my birthday. So, uh, oh, happy birthday. They, uh, they thought that might be a good day to release it on. Um, by the way, just I'm sorry to correct, but uh, the website is Gary R. Simmons. Uh, oh, I com. didn't see the R. Let me fix that. Gary R. Simmons. That's the uh, the age factor on my part. I didn't see the oh, R. No, Son please forgive me, but uh, no, um, I would love people to visit the website. And I, I will tell you, uh, people say, well, you know, what what am I after in the book? And I did want to really uh, give an exposure uh, to that world. I, I wanted people also to kind of get a sense of fragility of life and why we should be cherishing it, uh, because it, it can be so fleeting. But I really also wanted to open up an avenue for people to connect with me and discuss a bunch of other concepts and thoughts that I, I threw into the book, uh, hoping to really generate uh, some discourse. So I am wide open to people contacting me and and discussing anything in the book. Well, that's very uh, kind of you to mention that. And I think what we just did was cover a whole range of topics. You propelled it forward with the storyline, but it makes all the kind of sense in the world to talk about these things. Gary, real pleasure to meet you, sir. I wish you the best. I know this book will be successful, and we hope you write more fiction. Well, I very much appreciate it, Jordan. This has been a delight. My thanks to Dr. Gary Simmons, author of Death's Pale Flag, a terrific read. And thanks to you for subscribing and downloading this podcast, telling your friends about it, and the ratings and reviews keep piling up, and we really appreciate that. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. And dear friends, till next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.